Hello and welcome to the second episode of History Lesson Part 2, a show about the movies of history and the history of movies. Um, I'm Jackson McDonald. I'm Tyler Shipley. This will probably be the last time I announce what number of episode we're on. I feel it feels weird to do after number two. The movie we're discussing today is 1999's The Boondock Saints, directed by Troy Duffy, starring uh, Willem Dafoe, Sean Patrick Flannery, and Norman Reedus. This is about as far from the movie we did in episode one as I think it gets. Uh, The only similarity I can really think of is that both movies have a lot of guns in them. (laughs) Uh, And that's about it. So, Tyler, you selected this movie, interestingly. Um, why? <laughs> because why did I you make you. me? Why did you make me watch this movie? <laughs> Out of pure spite and hate. Yeah. Um, I chose this movie because I think you know. I knew you were going to ask me this, and I I had an answer ready, but I'm realizing I'm I'm peeling back the onion of myself Ooh. here. Okay. I think I I needed to work through. Uh, how bad this movie is because I have guilt about the fact that a young version of me liked it. Okay, that's interesting. All right. Yeah, I watched it as, I mean, 1999, I was 17, whatever I was. God, I I was, I'm sorry to do this to you, Tyler. I was was six years old. (laughs) Oh, Jackson, you're killing me. Um, Anyway, as six-year-old Jackson uh, was watching this movie, I I just... (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I was into it. I was a teenager and it felt like a lot of the movies that I was watching at the time. It sure. felt, and I know totally. you're going to talk about Tarantino and Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction. It felt like that. It felt like, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie. Uh, I was really into his first movie, Lock, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. And it was, you know, this like clever plot, lots of cheeky dialogue, lots of shooting, very irreverent. Um, and, and I was into that stuff. And this movie came along and seemed like it was another of those there was shooting, um, yep. I, you know, uh, there was dialogue in retrospect. It is a cult it classic. Like, and that's there are, just it. It's a cult movie. There, there are a yeah. lot of people who really like it. I know certainly uh, going into it, I didn't expect it to be as bad as it was, honestly. <laughs> I, I was like, ah, you know, I know it'll be stupid. I know a lot of people don't like it, but like it probably has something redeeming about it. It doesn't. No. Um, I know you're normally the historical context guy. But you mentioned Tarantino and Pulp Fiction, and I will just say that it, it will talk a little bit more about how that whole ecosystem was created and relates to each other. But um, the I will say just briefly that the Boondock Saints is part of the maybe one of the most well-known or uh, successful in a certain way entries in the sort of micro genre of Tarantino ripoffs. Uh, ripoff movies, particularly Pulp Fiction ripoff movies, because between Pulp Fiction coming out and uh, the end of the uh, like the the beginning of the 20th century, I, I can't remember when Kill Bill came out. I think it was like 2002 or 2003. Between that whole period of time, uh, Tarantino made one movie, and it was Jackie Brown which is kind of his, I would say, kind of his most left field movie. And there was just a insatiable appetite for someone to be someone to fill that Tarantino void and make like the stylish uh, gangster movie that knows it's a movie or whatever. 
And uh, there are a ton of different entries. Like this is uh, this is one of the most famous. I would say like gross point blank is probably mm-hmm. the best. A gross point blank and get shorty. And then you mentioned Guy Ritchie. He's sort of an example of somebody who I would almost say, even though his early stuff definitely is like it relates to that. The fact that he's British and uh, he's had this very long career, like I think he kind of almost transcends that and and makes like a new thing, even if it is definitely related. And then there's a, a, a like a countless just uh, bad or like forgettable entries, like um, things to do in Denver when you're dead. Nine heads in a duffel bag. Right. Uh, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, Mad Dog Time, Smoke and Aces, which I saw. I've seen a lot of these because mm-hmm. I was kind of, I was in a similar boat. Um, I saw Pulp Fiction when I was 12 or 13, I think. And I immediately was like, I want to be a film director after I saw <laughs> that movie. And, you know, I watched a, a ton of these because I wanted to fill the uh, same thing, like wanted to fill that void. And I also had about a dozen, a half a dozen to a dozen ideas for Tarantino ripoff movies that I concocted <laughs> in my head. And I will say that if you had allowed me to write and direct one of those at that age with like a competent group of people around me it would have been better than this movie yeah. i could almost guarantee that and that's a that's a that's a very long-winded introduction and i feel like i've kind of cut you off in the middle of of your no. your reason for for selecting this movie but no no that's the reason i was drawn to this movie in the first place mm-hmm. and you know i watched it and and to be honest at the time i mean i i think i liked it at the time but it didn't stick with me sure. uh, in in the sense that i didn't go back and rewatch it a bunch like i did with pulp fiction and like i did with the guy ritchie movie sure. uh, i didn't go back to it and then years later uh, I saw it in like a DVD bin and I was like, oh yeah, I remember that. And everyone still talks about that. I guess I'll grab it. Uh, and so I still have the thing. And, <laughs> wow. and I, I really hadn't watched it again in a, in a really long time. I'm not even sure if I had watched it in the last 10 or 15 years. And and when we started talking about, you know, doing a podcast about movies, I thought of it because I was like, you know, that movie I'm pretty sure was really fascist. And but but subtly so fascist in a kind of, you know, 90s way kind of yeah, below the radar. You you referred to this movie as low key fash when we talked about <laughs> yes. doing it. Uh, and after and now having watched it, I now have to ask you, like, what's high key fash triumph of right, the will? No, it's like true. that's the only that's literally <laughs> the only movie that's more reactionary than this movie that i can think of i could not yeah honestly i could not have anticipated what i sat through the other day when i <laughs> sat down to watch this and uh, jackson already knows as bad as the movie is oh. because i bought the collector's oh, edition oh, i have the deleted scenes And the deleted scenes are like going into the dark Freudian underbelly of a fascist asshole to find out what stuff was so bad that at some level someone said to him, listen, dude, you probably don't want to keep this. You can't keep this in the movie. Yeah. Like and and. It's it's incredible to me that it even made it into the deleted scene. Some of it should have been burned immediately after having been filmed. But absolutely, if the and we'll we'll get we'll get into more details when we do the plot of the movie here in a second. But like, 
if the deleted scenes had been included, I think people would remember this movie really differently, actually. Like, I think <laughs> it's true. I think it would have been taken yeah. as a totally different thing from how it was taken, even though it was still mostly panned when it came out. I think people would have a very different idea of the deal with it if, if those deleted scenes have been included to tease a little bit for what's coming up later in the episode. Yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a really bad movie. It's um, you know, my memory of it was that, yes, that it was low key fascist And this. My memory of it was that it was like um, like the, the Pulp Fiction stuff, but but less funny, mm-hmm. uh, all white and Irish and Catholic and 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 sort of like vigilante justice yeah my my capsule review of this movie was that it was like if you took a tarantino movie all of the stylistic ideas of a tarantino movie and then replaced everything that was good about it with being irish like it's just like someone (laughs) it's like someone was like okay flashbacks guns yeah uh quippy dialogue you know stylish violence or whatever and then in all of the holes where they were like okay question like do this question mark they were just like uh irish yeah (laughs) yeah yeah it's trying so hard to be irish that there are multiple occasions where one of the characters says ah come on it's saint patty's day we're all irish today yeah like that's an actual line that is i think used multiple times you know you know like it's it the writing is so bad the writing is just egregiously bad um on top of everything else that's bad about it yes. um anyway i you know i i it's an apologia for me for having picked this uh <laughs> and i know i know jackson's going to punish me by making me watch forrest gump yes that's the uh, that is revenge. the uh that is the revenge that uh, you're going to have to live through for making me watch this uh <laughs> i thought it was funny because it, it, i initially forgot forrest gump on my list and then i mentioned it last i was like oh and forrest gump we have to do forrest gump and Tyler was like, oh, God, don't make me watch Forrest Gump. And like, <laughs> honestly, Forrest, I mean, I don't even like, well, you know, I, I, I won't talk about Forrest Gump right now, but I will, I will just say, I guess that regardless of what you think about Tor- Forrest Gump, it is an absolute masterpiece compared to this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, no, no. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, no question. uh, you mentioned, you know, fascist assholes or whatever. And uh, I think, uh, by extension, this podcast is also, about uh the uh 2003 uh documentary about the making of this movie and about Troy Duffy uh directed by Tony Montana call which is called uh, Overnight which I also watched uh, as research for this in preparation for this and uh, the basically it it shines a light on on the very troubled production that this movie went through and there was there were a number of kind of it's 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 a totally crazy story because troy duffy is apparently originally from new hampshire grew up in boston or spent some time in boston moved out to la to become a screenwriter or get involved with the movie industry none of that worked out but while he was in la he saw a like news report about some like bad thing that happened because this movie is 1000% 1000% for people who watch the evening news, particularly who watched the evening news in the 1990s and uh, had this idea to write this like a vigilante justice movie that became the boondock saints. And somehow he passed this off to somebody guy who knew a guy or whatever. And it ends up becoming like the hottest script in Hollywood for a time. 
which is crazy because the script is terrible. It's horrible. But I kind of think I have a theory about this, right? Because when he sold the script, I think he got a $300,000 deal. 200,000 of it was for the script. And then the other 100,000 was for directing it or whatever. Um, and that was, it was, it was something like that. Some sh- shook out something like, uh, you know, uh, a two thirds, two thirds to write and then the other third to direct or whatever. And I would speculate that this was a bidding war that, that got out of control. He got a lot of free press, uh, when he sold the script as like, Oh, it's this working class, like Boston guy who he's a bartender and he just, overnight sensation that's why the movie's called overnight right like it's like this rags to riches story about this nobody who wrote the biggest script in hollywood or whatever right and i think that the if i had to speculate i think the initial idea was we could get a lot of cheap heat from that this script is clearly exploiting the uh the current like need the market for tarantino ripoff movies and if we take this script and give it to people who actually know what they're doing, do a rewrite, get a real director on it. There's enough ideas in here that we can take it, make something out of it, give this Troy Duffy idiot a story credit, and get a lot of cheap heat out of the fact that he's some nobody who sold a script for $300,000 or whatever, right? And then the whole thing just got out of control, and eventually uh, Miramax gets involved and and... Troy Duffy slated to direct, which is insane. Yeah. And, and I mean, what I have to say, too, about this in terms of the script is it says something profound about the state of Hollywood, assuming the script is more or less, you know, what appears in the film. Yes. Because not only is the script very bad, it's insanely uh, sexist yeah. and racist and homophobic at, at, at levels that are that are shocking you know, even net, like to a to a twenty twenty two audience, it is shocking, and and none of it is really played for irony. There's no there's nope. no kind of wink wink attempts at. It's just like a lot of the what what passes as a clever quip is just one of the men calling a woman a bitch. Yeah, and that's the joke. That's yeah. the whole druggy joke. bitch. Yes, druggy bitch. Yeah, no, it's it it is it's it's insane. And I I want to stress too that like I would not just dislike a film for having uh bad politics there are movies with bad politics that i like i would not uh dislike a movie just for having sexist terms or homophobic terms of it i mean hell the movie we did in the last episode che guevara uses the f slur which is used uh multiple times in this movie like i subscribe to the sort of tarantino ethos that like you should be allowed to write whatever you want to write and what and you should be allowed to use whatever words are needed for the story and realistic to the characters and the time frame and yada 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 but that's not what's happening in this movie it no, reveals no, itself no. to be a totally morally bankrupt totally unfunny and just ridiculously like like a- a sexist and homophobic and racist at its core yeah because it because because the guy that wrote it is those things absolutely and doesn't and doesn't have anything to say except that he hates women, uh, that he hates black people. Um, like that's, that's really all he has to say. And, and so that like what comes through in the film is that that's actually his politics. It's not like 
using the the n-word to make some kind of broader political point or you know no it's just he wanted or even just his character development you know even just the way it's used in like a scorsese movie where like scorsese movies use a lot of uh a lot of racial slurs and a lot of other kinds of slurs and a lot of sexism and people criticize scorsese sometimes for his movies being so focused on white men but i First of all, Scorsese is a great director. This guy is not. But second of all, with Scorsese, like that is always the point. Yes, you can you can disagree with with the fact that like he doesn't center uh, women or or people of color or or basically anyone who's not a white guy like enough. And I think that is a valid criticism. But in every one of his movies that is centered around those guys, when racism or sexism or homophobia is a part of it, it is always a part of it to illustrate how backwards and and apart from society these guys are. Right. And I've 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 heard people make the joke about The Departed. That's like, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson uses the N word in the first thirty seconds of the movie, and there's no black people in the movie, um, which is actually not entirely true because Anthony Anderson is in it, but he has a very small role. Um, but like once again, that is at least the the point. Like, yeah. you are meant to look at these guys and be like, they're disgusting racists and yeah. hogs. You know, you're not meant to sympathize with them, nor no. are you meant to find the those the use of those terms funny or cool. Right, exactly. Yeah. They're not they're never the punchline. They are always they are always used against the character using them. Whereas in this movie, that stuff is is the punchline, it's the point and you're supposed to like the character for doing it. So I I will just make one final um a, one sort of final uh thing on the on when it comes to the production of this movie because it was very troubled. And the reason why it was troubled is because initially uh, this was a a huge like blockbuster deal for for Duffy. Uh, it was bought by Miramax. Harvey Weinstein, funnily enough, is like he, he's he's uh, latched onto this thinking like I can make another Tarantino, basically, to the point where he offers to buy the bar that Duffy. And there is a plan to do this to buy the bar that Duffy works at and run it with Duffy. Like wow. he is so convinced that like he can he can do something with this right and hilariously the movie overnight uh successfully gets you to root for harvey weinstein to crush the dreams of this like working class <laughs> bartender and you absolutely Damn. do one thousand percent somehow yeah. harvey weinstein is the good guy in overnight which is amazing um right. really speaks to uh, how good, how well done the movie is and how much of a fucking asshole Troy Duffy is. And he is, he is portrayed as being a stupid asshole to everyone that he talks to, to the point where like this guy has been gifted every opportunity you could possibly ask for because while he is in the process of making this movie and having Harvey Weinstein buy a fucking bar for him to run, just a free, like a, a bar, the one thing in fucking service that is a license to print money everything else in the in the service economy yeah. is like the margins are like nothing a bar always it's the one thing that always makes money and this guy is just going to buy it and you're you're going to own it with him you're going to become a small business owner in addition to being a hollywood director and in addition to that he somehow lands a record deal for his extremely 
shitty <laughs> post-grunge man rock band. They suck. I did listen to his band. And, and they they do a couple songs in the soundtrack. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing that one thing I will that I we you know, I, it doesn't feel like I'm getting ahead of myself to say is like none of the music in this is good. No, like, it sucks. And it that's sucks. a thing. It all sucks. It's all totally either forgettable or just weird and intrusive. And that's a thing that like when compared with uh with with Tarantino is so lacking is like the music yeah. in any Tarantino movie is always just fantastic. It's always like. Uh, you know, a combination of like, you know, often like some weird, obscure, like Ennio Morricone knockoff, like Italian composer who who for some, you know, spaghetti uh war movie from the 60s or whatever. And like surf rock and like obscure, like like I'm a music nerd and I'll watch a Tarantino movie and have no idea what 90 percent of the music is like. He's really, really good at finding extremely cool obscure like hipster shit to put in his music in his movies and but it always works it always, always makes yeah, sense and it always makes sense it, but, it always adds yeah. to the movie rather than taking away from it but yeah he gets a a, uh, a record deal for his absolutely shitty band uh and the record is produced by skunk baxter who's a fucking amazing guitar player uh session guitar player who played with the doobie brothers and hilariously, the album comes out and it sells something like 640 copies. Uh, it's under the name of the Boondock Saints. Like he changes the oh. band's name to the Boondock Saints. And it's like, to, to put that in perspective, this album came out on a major label, right? Uh, I was in a band in high school and we did a run of about a hundred to 150 CDs, uh, in 2011 for like my shitty high school band where I like wrote all the songs or whatever. And we sold the entire run of 150. And that was yeah. just us in Parksville. <laughs> and this guy was on a major label. Like he couldn't even, he couldn't even offload like a thousand copies to Boston shitheads. So, so brutal. And so eventually uh what happens is uh Harvey, Harvey Weinstein walks away and the movie doesn't have a distributor. And so it, uh, it screens at, I can't remember what festival, um, reasonably big deal festival and it screens and no one wants to buy it. And now all of a sudden they've gone from like, first of all, you know, when Harvey walks away, the budget gets like cut in half. So he has to, he has to find this new production company that only gives him half the budget that Harvey was going to give him. And then when he screens it, no distributor wants to pick it up. So, uh, it ends up air like uh screening very very briefly limited release in a couple of cities and then go straight to dvd and hilariously that is where it became a huge success uh making about 50 million in uh dvd sales and rentals and it was a like i've all i can't remember a time in my life where i didn't know about the existence of this movie because i just remember seeing the cover in the video store like every week that when i mm. went there you know, mm -hmm. and I was just kind of wondering, like, oh, I wonder what the deal with that is. So anyways, I think that's enough in terms of the, the production of the movie. You kind of get the idea. And you know what is interesting? One thing before we get into the, the plot of it is that all of that, that kind of like false underdog thing. Yes. That tracks so well with a right wing audience. Absolutely. The, the idea of like they want to be the underdog. Turning David, the turning Goliath into David. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They want to be the underdog. They love the idea that like everyone was against them. Everyone's against us. You know, the media hates us. The, yeah. the you know, whatever. But of course, like in reality, the guy was like in way over his head in the first place and, and had a shitty script and a shitty idea and, and made a shitty movie. And frankly, it should have been a flop. It should have collapsed. Yes. And the fact that it got any recognition at all uh, is, you know, a bad sign of where things are at. Uh, it kind of predicts Trump in a way. And I know comparing things to Trump are kind of hack. But but genuinely, I think it is the same principle of the reason why Trump is so successful among like a million other reasons is that he is a stupid asshole's idea of what a rich person should be. Like yeah. he acts and honestly, like minus the minus the racism and sexism and just the stupidity, there is a lot of stuff about Trump that I think even just a normal person would be like, well, that's what I'd do if I had a shit ton of money. Right. I'd like I'd pay some asshole to go pick up McDonald's for me. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. like shit like yeah. that. Like I or just like, yeah, I'd run for president and just insult everyone. Like yeah, like yeah. I you know, admittedly when, before before we knew he was going to win, the, him up on that debate stage was fucking hilarious. Like, I mean, it still is, even in retrospect. Well, yeah, absolutely. He's still, you know, a, a, there's a certain like performance artistry to his comedy. He has, he is. I mean, the difference between Trump and, <laughs> and Duffy. Troy Duffy is that Trump is actually funny. funny. Yes, they're both assholes, but yes. Trump is funny. Trump's staging of his like finding out that rbg was dead with tiny dancer playing in the background <laughs> so i mean good. yeah you, you i couldn't have written but that that's like, the that's other thing though is that troy funny. duffy can't even be unintentionally funny no in in no. the movie he is an overnight i was saying before we started recording that he's like a danny mcbride character in real life i would describe uh uh the sort of dynamic of of overnight as like entourage if Vinny Chase was replaced with like, you know, a, a Danny McBride character and the, uh, his career imploded on launch, basically. Um, that's sort of the dynamic at play with like him and his friends. They're all so certain that they're about to be like the toast of Hollywood. Oh, man. He's talking to his band about how, like, if we do this, we're going to be the first people to ever do this hit movie and hit record at at exactly the same time you know he really thinks like that's what's gonna happen and the funny thing about his band is like they don't even have a cult following they put out that one record and like that was it and they imploded but uh yeah um i think i think we can probably get into the 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 plot of the the movie here um which i i have a very detailed account of um so we'll we'll go through this sort of uh piece by piece and and talk about our observations about it. So the the central uh, brothers in the movie that are the, the the titular saints are named Connor and Murphy McManus, the most Irish ass names of all time. But uh, I don't think they ever actually say what their names are. And so I had inserted into my head, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Elvis Costello, right? Yeah, yeah. Elvis Costello's real name is Declan Patrick McManus. And so for the entirety of this movie, I had just inserted into my head that their names were Declan and Patrick McManus, which would have been basically the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, so we open in South Boston on St. Patrick's Day, obviously, where brothers Connor and Murphy McManus watch a Catholic priest. They're in a Catholic church, give a sermon 
that references the extremely relevant to 1999 murder of Kitty Genovese. Which, of course, uh, they get wrong. They get the detail. The priest yes. telling the story yes. gets it wrong. And presumably Troy Duffy no- does not know that, that this is an incorrect version of the story. No, no. Uh, yeah, it's been it, it, the, the, the general story of the murder of Kitty Genovese is that she like everybody just heard her dying and saw her dying and no one did anything about it. And that's been like thoroughly debunked 100 percent uh it's also the only time in the movie that a murder of an italian is seen as a bad thing um <laughs> that's true <laughs> which i think that's is funny true. um yeah yeah totally the movie is basically open season on italians if they're italian it's the they're one bad, good thing about the movie um <laughs> no uh, uh it is yeah it it, it it has even it's got like old school racism in this movie oh, yeah. which is very funny oh, yeah so then over the opening credits, we see shots of the Boston Harbor intercut with uh, the brothers getting into various uh, hijinks and uh, shenanigans at the meatpacking plant where they work, um, including assaulting a female subordinate who has just been hired uh, when she woke scolds them for using the phrase rule of thumb which apparently refers to a practice that allowed men to beat their wives so long as it was with a stick no wider than their thumb. I don't know if that's actually true. That sounds like one of those things that's like shit is actually ship high in transit or whatever that's totally made up. As I watched that scene, I sent you a message that said, we aren't even past the opening credits and these guys are beating up a feminist. Absolutely. Like- and she, and uh, so what they what one of the two brothers says, uh, uh, like they get into a scuffle with her because uh, one of them makes a joke that he goes, can't do much damage with that. Can I should have been rule a wrist. So that's the first joke in the movie. Yeah, the first. The first yeah. The first joke is uh, should be we should be beating up women more, more. and more effectively. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and this gets to the first deleted scene um, oh, man. that you that you teased earlier. So do you want to describe uh, what the full version of that scene looks like because it's something I mean, it's, else. It's actually incredible. It feels it's like actually... something out of a like Daily Wire movie, yeah, or something like. It would be... Like I, I watched. Um, I just watched not that long ago a movie called Range Fifteen. Um, it's terrible. Don't watch it. It's as bad as this movie. Uh, maybe worse actually. And it is like it's a movie that's like it's not made by them, but it's made by a very similar company. It's like a movie made by like Black Rifle Coffee about yeah. the troops in a zombie yeah. apocalypse and everything about the movie is just like you're gay if you're not the troops we're not gay <laughs> we're definitely you know we're uh, we're also not trans and we wouldn't have sex with trans women and uh and everybody who's not a troop uh especially gay nerds should get killed uh, yeah. and that's like the movie um and this movie especially when you see the the full deleted scenes like feels almost exactly like that movie did oh totally which is an insane indictment of a regular studio movie made in in 1999 but anyways no kidding and and like we'll come back i want to talk about like the the gay stuff and (laughs) yeah yeah. like this is a deeply this is a deeply homophobic and deeply closeted movie like yes it is it is saturated with his 
uh, like I think obvious erotic fantasies about men. Yes. Um, and also saturated with like transphobia and and homophobia. But yes. that's beside. Let's start on yes. beating up women. Uh, yeah, beating a up women. Yeah. Because th- that opening scene, and especially the longer version of it, the full version of it, it's like if you if if one of these new far right guys influence like you know uh, Ben Shapiro. If, yeah. if you gave Ben Shapiro the money to make like a little workplace scene depicting his politics. Yes. It's basically that, you know, that our, our, our twins, our, our twin heroes meet this uh, woman who is dressed up to look like Rosie the Riveter. And yep. her name is, is like some Germanized R- Rosengrunder or something. Yeah, it's and- cr- clearly like, Ro- Rosie the Riveter is the yeah. is the yeah. sort of inspiration for it. And she's she's played by I can't remember the name of the actress, but you've seen her in stuff. Guaranteed. She's she always plays like a big um I think she was actually I think the thing I remember is she was the gym teacher on Lizzie McGuire, <laughs> funnily enough. Uh, but <laughs> okay. she's like uh she always plays like a big butch lesbian, basically. Uh yeah. and she's very good at it and 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 kudos to her for having a film career as a as a woman with that looks like that. Um, cause that's not easy. Um, and she's good. She's, she's a good character actress. Uh, I'm sorry she was in this movie. Um, yeah. I mean, she, she deserves, uh, yeah. Like yeah. The, she the, deserves like, uh, restitution. Um, yeah, for that. Reparations she, for this. Yeah. Reparations. Yeah. Exactly. And she has a tattoo too in the deleted scene that says untouched by men, I believe. Yeah. 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 Untouched by men. Um, she's a, she's a, like, she's every stereotype of a butch lesbian that someone who's never met a lesbian would have or a feminist uh, yeah, yeah 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 someone who has never met a feminist never met uh, a lesbian possibly never met or spoken to a woman um <laughs> other than would, his would, mother i would believe right it. yeah well yeah, yeah and we'll get back to his mother in a minute but um <laughs> so anyway i mean there's a there's a, a side moment where the boss pulls one of the twins aside and explains why this person's been hired and i mean it's like a 60 second exposition about how political correctness, uh, which is what is we call woke meat culture in plants. the nineties, yeah, yeah, is ruining, uh, undermining the the hardworking business uh, owners and and working people of Boston. And but this clever, you know, Irish meatpacking uh, baron, you know, uh, is getting ahead of. They literally say the the, the leftist. Um, yeah, basically, the, right? The, like, the, yeah, no, he literally says we get ahead of the lefty, um, affirmative action types by hiring the woke and mob. The it term, would be if it was made now. Yeah. And he says by, by hiring fat lesbians, uh, <laughs> so that they can't accuse us of not hiring fat lesbians. And this is supposed to be like the, you're supposed to be laughing at this, but there's nothing funny. It's just this bad sort of exposition. Yeah. We then cut to the scene where one of the, the, twin brothers uh yeah makes a joke about uh beating up uh women we also get an extended um version of her getting mad at the rule of thumb thing um that that more specifically shows that uh she is one of um these these this this right-wing boogeyman that people have of the person who gets offended by everything yeah um which of course like doesn't exist like i highly doubt anyone aside from online where people are like free to live out uh their their deepest like desires and fantasies and get mad about whatever stupid fucking thing they want like i would be willing to bet that no person in real life has ever actually gotten mad about the phrase rule of thumb in the moment yeah maybe no, later maybe later on 
you take someone aside and you say, hey, just so you know, the history of that is actually this. You probably shouldn't say it or whatever. But just like immediately screeching about it. No, that's never happened ever. No, it's totally contrived, contrived. uh, You know, this is this is what the world's going to be like if we let these lefties take over. Yeah, Um, you know, it it tracks with the anti-PC sort of moment of, of that era. You know, you think about actually a really interesting connection to make might be the movie American History X, which came out uh, a couple years before. And it was about neo-Nazis in the 90s. And the the main character played by Edward Norton uh, repeats a lot of the talking points of 90s anti-PC, anti-affirmative action, all of the things that are now anti-woke and anti-cancel culture. The sort of antecedents of those of these movements are these ones from the 90s. And and that's basically what this movie does is like preach that stuff, which in the movie American History X, you know, it gets revealed that that stuff is actually kind of just the surface of fascism. Yeah, stupid bullshit that that uh, that that masks a deep, uh, you know, fascist politics underneath. And that, you know, in American History X, that's criticized in this dumbass movie. It's just presented as like funny and good. Yeah. American History X, actually a good movie that maybe we might do at some point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the first two minutes of this movie. Yeah. And obviously we yeah. got into the, uh, the, um, deleted scene there, but, uh, we, we, tra- after that, we transitioned to a local tavern where we are introduced to David Delarocco, which is actually the actor's real name. And in the, and, uh, we're also introduced to the films, uh, the first of the films, many recurring crimes, which is, uh, totally useless chirons explaining who the character <laughs> is and who they work for despite the fact that their names and jobs are stated almost immediately after they are introduced so like yeah. the way this movie works is you like see a guy and it'll be like david delarocco works for the acavetta family uh also known as funny man and it'll be like and then the immediately after the chiron disappears the dialogue is like Hey, David Delarocco. Hey, it's the funny man. How's working for the Acavetta family? <laughs> like, it, it's one of those things where, like, um, Inglorious Bastards, we're going to do that movie at some point. And there's a joke. It's actually probably the funniest joke in Inglorious Bastards is when the guy goes, um, talks about Hugo Stiglitz and he goes, you know, do you know Hugo Stiglitz? And then the guy goes, Everyone in the SS knows Hugo Stiglitz. And then it cuts to Hugo Stiglitz and he's like smiling and laughing. And then it just goes, just Chiron, Hugo Stiglitz. <laughs> and it's so funny because it's like, it, it's clearly not necessary, but it's self-aware about that. And it's like, he probably wanted, he was like, Oh, I want an excuse to like introduce him with like cool looking script or whatever. So I'll write a joke. Yeah. To, to justify it. But yeah. with this movie, it's just like, it's it's that it's a tick gaudy the terrible gaudy movie with john travolta also does this where it's just like you think it's cool to like freeze frame and have script on the screen and the little sort of like the typing sound as it gets as it comes onto the screen the sound exactly yeah so uh the bartender who uh appears in a couple scenes and seems to have uh tourette's i guess and a stutter and again just a thing that like the joke is that he has Tourette's and th- that's yeah. not like you could use have like having Tourette's c- could be funny. Like it, it could be a th- like he could interrupt something at an inopportune time or something like there's the Curb you know, Your Enthusiasm episode about the chef that has Tourette's, yeah, which is really funny. It can be very funny. Like it, it, it's not. And and you can and you can also do it without necessarily like just making fun of the person for having Tourette's or whatever. 
I think the joke is that he yells fuck ass and that's supposed to be the funny. What's funny is that he said that, that that's what he says. See now, and the thing that when you when you zoom out is funny about that is that so does every other character. Like every <laughs> yeah, other character true. does that. That's like, true. Every yeah. character in the movie screams fucking ass all the time. Yeah, that's true. Half the, half the movie is just people yelling and swearing, but for no reason. So the bartender informs the brothers and their pals who are Troy Duffy and his band. Um, they make a cameo in here. If you remember uh, the dumb, chubby asshole who's wearing overalls, <laughs> that's Troy Duffy. Oh, brutal. If you remember him from that scene. Okay. So uh, he's, he's telling them that they have to close the bar because the Russians are buying up property all over town. I don't know what that means. I don't know why that means that uh, the bar is closing. I don't know who the Russians are. They aren't even really clear that it's the Russian mob. There's also a recurring joke where the bartender gets idioms wrong. And that uh, joke is shamelessly lifted from Back to the Future. And there's a lot of stuff that's shamelessly lifted from other movies yeah. in this. Yeah. But in, in Back to the Future, Biff, actually, he says one of the things that the bartender basically says, which is make like a tree and get out of here. And in Back to the Future, it's funny because he's stupid and he doesn't know. It's like make it's supposed to be make like a tree and leave. Right? right. Which would make sense. And he does it with a bunch of stuff. Screen door in a battleship. And it doesn't make sense. It's like these funny little anac or, um, uh, malapropisms. But in this movie, it just doesn't. It's just stupid. And so uh, conveniently, the Russians then immediately arrive after he says this. Yeah, it worked out well. Instantaneously and inform him that he will actually be closing up right now uh, for some reason. Uh, after another Chiron explaining that the Russian guy is Russian, as you can tell from his terrible fake accent, um, we cut to the next day where the Russians are seen uh, lying dead in an alley from some kind of you missed a you missed a really important uh, piece, which which is that in that scene for the second time in the first uh, five minutes of the film, we're informed that it's St. Patty's Day. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, that comes up uh, that comes up multiple uh, times in in yeah, just like the first ten minutes of this movie. So as we see these uh, these Russians lying dead in the alley, we are introduced to FBI agent Paul Smecker, played by Willem Dafoe, in the third Chiron to appear in the first nine minutes of the movie. Um, so we're averaging a Chiron for every three minutes of screen time so far. <laughs> Jackson is the Chiron police of this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the shithead Boston PD officer Greenlee, who I guess is also uh, being assigned to the case. This guy's really annoying and stupid, but I will say, I think the one redeeming, like consistently redeeming thing about this movie is also the thing that's the most out of place in it, which is uh, Willem Dafoe making fun of that guy it's really the only thing that actually other than one other thing that i'll get to in a minute that i did actually think was funny and it's the only real like affectation that defoe has everyone in this movie is unbelievably blank and like when you get absolutely nothing out of willem defoe and billy Connolly, that is a crime do you know how hard it is to not get something interesting from willem defoe it should be impossible. It, worth noting that Willem Dafoe did not return uh, for the sequel. Uh, that yeah, uh, you know, clearly he he had the, had the sense to recognize that he had been involved in an absolute piece of shit movie. He could tell he's in a piece of shit. You yeah. can tell from his behavior on screen. There's there's he's in one scene in Overnight, and he's just kind of getting mad at Duffy. Like he's just kind of like mildly like 
frustrated like just kind of being like okay i get it like you shut up like he doesn't say he's very polite but he's just like you know oh i i get it troy like i'm supposed to be doing this that's yeah Yeah. cool i'm gay i get it so uh basically uh greenlee gets to work explaining his theory that like an andre the giant style man um committed the murders with uh for, for for some reason it's not entirely clear and also i you know it's it's a long movie and I didn't get every little detail, but, uh, yeah, he thinks like some giant, uh, did it. And then, um, he's, he gets immediately schooled by Smecker who informs him that, uh, because the victims are Russian mobsters, it's a federal matter and asks him for a cup of coffee. I'm not entirely, um, sure what, uh, if that, that that's correct or. Oh, I highly doubt. I highly doubt that Troy Duffy did his, uh, homework on, on jurisdictional issues here. No. Um, and, and when they talk about this later in a, in a later scene, when they're kind of, um, uh, figuring it out or whatever, I think the one, like the funniest line in the movie, and there are very few, and it's a very low bar is like, um, he's, he's describing, uh, what he thinks. And then he turns to Greenland and he goes, or it was done by some huge friggin' goy. And I thought that was kind of funny. I was, (laughs) because it's once again, like, I mean, Smecker is the hero of the, initially the hero of the movie because he hates Boston shitheads. And I'm sure. That's meant to not endear him to the to the viewer, but like for me, I was like, okay, this character may actually be okay uh-huh. because he's making fun of Boston people, and then unfortunately, it just doesn't come up enough in the rest of the movie. Uh, Schmecker then puts on uh, classical music in his headphones and dances to it for some reason uh, while collecting like blood samples. And uh, this sets the scene for what is basically the structure of most of the movie, like the first 75% anyways. So um, Smecker proceeds to nail basically every element of the crime that took place and describes it in perfect detail. And then it flashes back and they show the thing that he just described <laughs> half an, happening more or less exactly the way he described it, which Gets into, I think, like our first, um, you know, shameless Tarantino ripoff, but also critical misunderstanding of Tarantino, which is like that flashbacks are cool. And uh, the thing is, is that flashbacks are only cool when there's an element of mystery or surprise to it. In Pulp Fiction, what makes the nonlinear structure interesting is that at every moment when you're watching a thing that is taking place in the past of the cr- chronology of the movie. You're go, you're, you're saying things like, Oh, these two guys knew each other or, Oh, these two guys met up at some point, or that's why they're wearing weird clothes or that's why this happened in this. You already know everything that's about to happen. So it's just completely pointless. And this is one of those things where it's like, I could see some, why somebody would be like, okay, we're going to take the idea of the script and actually make it into a mo- like something half decent because you could theoretically with enough like mystery make something interesting out of this of like them being like, like theorizing what happened, um, in the crime, having disagreements, having different theories. And then certain elements of are right. Certain elements are dead wrong. And you know, it's a combination of everybody's different opinions or whatever that could have been interesting, but because everyone basically in this movie has to be an amazing genius and every villain has to be a stupid shithead. Uh, like it's just, you're, you're, it's like if you've ever watched a movie with somebody who doesn't know how to watch a movie 
and they tell you everything that's about to happen right before it happens and ruin it for you. <laughs> Troy Duffy just like wants to give you that feeling of watching a movie with that guy, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, arguably, arguably, it's because Troy Duffy doesn't like movies and isn't really in, and doesn't understand yes. movies. I mean, there's a reason he literally has not made any other movies. Yeah. It's because in the sequel. That's it. Because, yeah, because what Troy Duffy cares about is that he hates PC culture and he hates, yes. you know, uh, all this black stuff that I'm forced to. And why can't we say the N word? And all these bitches yes. are ruining my life. He hates, you know, women and himself and and non-white. Like, and that's what he that's all he cares about. So he doesn't know how to make a movie and he doesn't care about how to make a movie. He doesn't know what makes a movie good or bad. This whole thing this whole assemblage of fucking shitty, stupid scenes that he's put together is literally just a vehicle for him to expound his asshole opinions. Like that's really all yeah. this is. He, he is only defined by what he hates rather than by what he thinks is good or likes. Um, and yeah, I mean, you said that's the reason why he's only made two movies. The other reason he's only made two movies is because he's blacklisted from Hollywood <laughs> for being a shithead. Yeah, but uh, yeah, um, there's also a great aside here where um, a cop, gives up on looking for a bullet casing after like 30 seconds. And then Willem Dafoe is like, did you check under the body? And then the guy's like, oh yeah. And then he finds it and it's like played off. Like, oh, he's such a genius for <laughs> yeah. telling the guy to check in an yeah. obvious place. He like kind of like mugs for the camera too. She's <laughs> yeah. um, just me being like, oh yeah, I'm a really fucking good cop actually. And that brings us, yeah, to the, to the second, you know, major recurring crime of this movie, which is just the, the flashbacks that absolutely add nothing to the, yeah. to the narrative. Um, and, uh, more importantly, the action sequences, the interminable action sequences that all take place in slow motion. There is one scene where someone gets shot and it's not in slow motion in the entire movie. And so many people get shot in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And it is just like, Here's a guy shooting a gun in slow motion. Yeah. Reverse shot. Here's the guy getting hit by bullets in slow motion. And that's it. It is just ugly and stupid and boring to look at. Yeah. It's not even interesting slow motion. You know, there, there's no, you, like, like what, you know, terrible. where you follow the bullet's eye view and then, you know, you slowly work your way through the organs of the body. Like it's, it's completely unoriginal. Nothing interesting about it at all. So Smecker returns to the station at this point and uh, complains that the story has gotten uh, out to the lying fake news media uh, who are sensationalizing the story and glorifying what they interpret to be uh, vigilante justice on behalf of the uh, McManus brothers. And this this part was kind of interesting because I couldn't quite tell if it was supposed to be anti-media or not, because the media is actually kind of almost treated positively in this movie in a lot of ways and um of course smecker like later on is sort of uh as time goes on like uh, he's supposed to be at least at first like this symbol of like you know all the red tape of the law or whatever and so i could never quite tell if him shitting on the media was supposed to be like ah, oh, you know the media they lie all the time or if it's supposed to be like a a, a viewpoint into his like um you know, oh, they're complicating the, the, the case by telling the damn truth, you know? I mean, I think it's because, as I've said, like, I, I don't think this guy has any concept of how to, like, draw a character and create yeah. a character that has any consistency. And he doesn't even understand, and you kind of mentioned this in one of our exchanges about it, like, he doesn't even really mm -hmm. understand the basic premise of, like, having 
you know, protagonists and antagonists. Yeah. Because, because fundamentally what happens in this movie is that everyone fucking loves the two twins. Everyone yeah. loves the vigilante twins because everyone, everyone agrees. Everyone agrees that the woke mob is out of control and the bad people and the gangsters and the pedophiles and the murderers and someone's got to do something about it. And everyone Should agrees. Should all be put to death without exactly. due process. Summarily the same executed. People- the same people who would complain about the last movie that we watched, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, not having uh, Che Guevara do enough of that, That's which right. he didn't really do uh, because it's bad. Yeah, because when you're in a police or army uniform uh, and you commit crimes and murder people, that's good. But <laughs> if you do it as a gangster, it's bad. Yeah. Um. And uh, once again, another thing that this movie like it has no idea what to think about cops because fa- uh, uh-huh. you know modern fascists have no idea what to think about cops. Yeah. They well, exactly. That's just they it, basically right? like them and think they're good, but think that they're not given enough power. Right. Basically, which is it's, insane. I mean, this movie is like Batman, except if you if you take away from Batman all of his tech. And like yeah. the the degree of professionalism, if one may mm-hmm. say, that Batman possesses in in his vigilante approach, uh, you'd like take that away, strip that away, and strip away any like moral uncertainty that Batman slash Bruce Wayne might have, mm-hmm. uh, and you get the McManus twins, um, and like that's the like his total of the movie. unwillingness to kill anyone, yeah, which which is like the thing that kind of makes Batman interesting to the extent that he's interesting, which is not very. It's like his his almost like psychotic refusal to actually mete out vigilante justice <laughs> yeah. by killing someone. He will beat even and when maim it's you. the Joker or whatever, yeah. right? Yeah, like, he will yeah. beat and maim you to the point <laughs> to, until you yeah. are on life support. He'll throw you off a but, building and break both your legs, but he won't <laughs> yeah. kill you. He will yeah. stop um, short of ending your life. So as he's going on this tirade, the McManus brothers show up and immediately turn themselves in. They get interviewed by Smecker. Uh, during which they reveal that they speak like five different languages, oh, God, which never comes up again and is included. Like you can just see Troy writing this and being like, the other thing about these guys is the wicked freaking smart. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we get, that's when we actually get our first flashback. Um, it's not really worth going into detail with any of these cause it's, they're not important, but uh, basically they get into a totally lifeless ball uh brawl bar brawl sorry with the russians and set set one of them one of their asses on fire briefly and then the russians come in shake them down the next day one of them gets handcuffs to a toilet which he somehow pulls out of the piping and i mean you know if this movie were done well that wouldn't bother me but i know it's very, i know exactly what you mean it's like you would, stupid you would forgive a, a, a stretch like that in a different movie but in a movie tarantino like this, could do it no yeah, problem yeah right but yeah. in this it's stupid uh, and eventually tears it out of the floor and drops it on one of them. And this is one of those things where this is an example of like why I could see a Hollywood person taking this and being like, okay, this is written like dog shit. And if we do it the way it's on the page, it's going to suck. But I could take this and give it to somebody who knows how to write. Yeah. And this might actually be kind of interesting. But the way it's played off in the movie is just totally lifeless and uh and boring so uh it's ruled self-defense smecker lets them go and they return home that night uh they each like simultaneously awake as water uh like leaks on them from the ceiling and uh share like an epiphany that they need to like rid the world from evil it's like a message from god but it's it's not really clear like 
I had to kind of read about it and like watch the movie multiple times to to get that impression because it's not very clear at all when it happens. And they have this thing where they like say this prayer and the prayer is made up and it's um it's totally like it's t- shameless Pulp Fiction ripoff of Ezekiel 2517 that they just that, you know, the scene in Pulp Fiction at the very end where he says, I used to think it was just a cold thing I could say before I pop a motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is literally just that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's not clear, like, where the prayer came from or why they know it. Like, it's just they just say it and hear it in their head. And we have no idea what it is or why they what the deal with it is. But it's apparent. But it's like really important, apparently. Yeah. And it never becomes clear. Like that to me is what's like that. What makes this movie so stupid is that none of the things that in the early part of the film you'd expect. Oh well, I guess that'll get explained later. None of them do. It it really like nope. it's it's empty. This movie is utterly fucking bereft of anything meaningful besides that this guy hates women. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so now we go to now we arrive at the scene that you were so excited to talk about. We cut to Rocco who is meeting with his boss, Giuseppe Yacovetta, uh, a mobster of ambiguous ethnic heritage <laughs> and head of the Yacovetta crime family. I, from what I can tell, he's like an Eastern European Italian. That seems to be what he's yeah. like coded as. It's very weird. This is one of those things. Like, and he's meeting um, and he, he's also meeting with a like a sleazy mid-level gangster played by Ron Jeremy. And this feels very like uh, if you described this, to someone, it would almost sound like a spoken word Tom Waits song. Like, uh, you know, uh, I was meeting with the, 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 the Russian Italian and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and the porn star. And yeah. were, you know, like that, you know, yeah. with a, with a tattoo of a teardrop and, yeah. you know, like that kind yeah. of shit. Right. And, uh, but of course it's, it's totally, once again, totally lifeless. Um, Rocco is known as funny man. So he's implored by the two men to tell a joke. Which brings us to the third recurring crime of the movie, gratuitous racism um, that serves absolutely no purpose whatsoever. Yeah, this scene um, never becomes relevant. It never, no. ever becomes relevant. Even that he's like that he's funny or that he's supposed to have a funny like none of this is, is relevant to any other part of the plot at all. It's just a vehicle for uh, Rocco the funny man to tell an insanely racist joke and have Ron Jeremy butt in every time... He says uh, black people. And yeah, he's and, kind of uncomfortable about saying yeah. the slurs. Well, because and they both chide him to say the slurs. Yeah. Well, you understand um, this is because he's a he's been this is I'm, I'm now paraphrasing <laughs> Troy Duffy's uh, idiot mind. You know, sure, this yeah. poor Rocco has been trained by the PC police that he's not allowed right. to use those yes. words. Ah, he's okay. uncomfortable yeah. using the N word. But for the joke to really land, you have to use the N word. And that's why these guys push him to fulfill the joke in its proper form. Be it, have it be as racist as it is meant to be. Oh, and by the way, the joke itself is racist. Uh, and, and basically, you know, the- and, and, and the, so the, the, the way that I, the way that, so the joke is, and I'll say it and, and I'll just say it because it actually, to the extent I'm, I'm, I, I have to, this is weird to deconstruct this, but it's like this joke structure c- could be funny and the punchline could be funny. It's actually, there's a better punchline. There's a better way to say it that he he ignores and, and does a worse version of, but t- to the extent that, that this joke could be funny, 
it's the slurs are definitely not necessary necessary at all and you would actually be better uh replacing it with like lawyers or something right like yeah. if you replace this with lawyers you you would be like okay that's kind of funny like yes. you get like a mild chuckle maybe sure so the joke is uh three guys they're they have different races but it, there's no reason why they have to be different races three guys find a genie uh they find a lamp they rub the lamp a genie comes out and says he'll grant each of them one wish first guy says i wish for all the blacks to be out of america uh he grants the wish second guy says i wish for all the mexicans to be out of america he grants the wish he asks the third guy what his wish is the third guy says so you're telling me all the blacks and all the mexicans are out of america and then the genie says yes and he goes i, I i'll have a coke or something like that and so not funny at all in the way that they tell it the the punchline should be like more it should be more exaggerated even just in the context of making a joke it should be something like like huh uh, i guess i'll take a coke or something like that but instead it's just like i wish for a coke and yeah like i said like if you replace this with like i don't know cops and lawyers cops and lawyers that would be kind of funny sure like like it's it's not the it's not the structure of the joke that's not funny. It's specifically the racism. And yeah, the scene, it makes no sense. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movie. And there's nothing funny about it. Except that except that our villains laugh, right? They laugh at the joke. Yeah, and- it's not clear that they're going to laugh and then they do laugh. But yeah. it's like, it's stupid because of course they're going to laugh because they keep chiding him to say slurs. Yeah, exactly. Now, what, what could have made this kind of work or be funny is if it was... And of course, Troy Duffy would never do this because he would never cast anyone who's not white in his movie. But if one of them was black and one of them was Mexican and they made him tell the joke. Yeah, that could have been something. And then and then they laugh at the end and it's like played off like, oh, it's all in good fun. We're all laughing at the joke. It's just a joke or whatever. That would at least be something. (laughs) This is nothing. Yeah, it's like in the hands of a good writer. You can you could maybe do something. with. You can work in the realm of racist jokes and in the sense that you can you can you know either make some do a funny expose of why a joke um is stupid uh you can do uh reversals of racist jokes that actually find humor in the structure of the of the joke without needing the racist like there's lots of things you can do to Mm -hmm. to work around the existence of racist jokes like it's like you said at the top of this episode it's not that a movie can never portray a racist joke it's not that if I no, see that there's a racist not. joke in a movie, then I'm canceling it. You know, I mean, I, that's no. not how this critique works. And that's what Troy Duffy doesn't understand. Troy Duffy doesn't understand that subtlety. And that's the thing that actually does really piss me off about like uh, now, of course, I don't believe in the woke mob or, or whatever. I think that shit's stupid. But there are there is a segment of people that people sometimes call it uh, uh, good dog, bad dog criticism. Right. And it's it's the idea and it is becoming um, more popular in the realm of of sort of film criticism and criticism of everything. That is the idea that if you are portraying something, it is de facto a unendorsement of that thing. And I fucking hate that. That makes me really irritated, makes me really mad when someone looks at a movie and says like, oh, well, it has a character be racist in it. So it's bad. And it's like, well, that's stupid. Yeah. How How are you how are you supposed to make a movie? about how racism is bad and and, and not have racism in it just exactly. as an example right? exactly like exactly. so uh so anyways uh yeah we cut next to uh there's a scene of the brothers like purchasing a cache of weapons while some weird kenny g 
instrumental ripoff of Oh Darling plays in the background. And they somehow deduce that uh, some kind of Russian mob transaction is going to take place at a local hotel. And they head there to intercept it. Uh, flashing forward slightly, we get, once again, the typical structure of all the action sequence. Smecker gets a phone call while in bed with a racially ambiguous twink. And this is another example of a thing that I actually, like, did a, like, hard uh, nose exhale when this scene happened. Yeah. So the guy that he's in bed with is, like, getting all touchy-feely with him or whatever. And he pushes him away and he hangs up the phone and he's like, what's your fucking deal? And the guy says, well, I was hoping we could cuddle. And he goes, what a F slur. Yeah. Right. And once again, in, in the hands of a smarter writer, in a world where Smecker is actually drawn as a character, you could do something funny and interesting with gay guy who doesn't see himself as a gay guy. Yeah. That is, that is actually tried and true comedic territory. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of, like I said, I kind of went like, huh, you know, or whatever. Like, that's mildly amusing. And then it's just immediately ruined because he heads to the place and the next three sentences, every word out of the person's mouth is that word. Yeah. Like, it's just completely robbed of any humor that it might have had as a thing that was said once by just having one gratuitously repeated over and over again for no real reason, um, as is always the case. And this is too, and you know, this is another of those moments where the, the lack of self-awareness uh, on the part of the director um, to, to write that and not, and not see what he was. I mean, he's basically showing his own ass in, in, in as far Absolutely. as I'm concerned, like he's, he's inadvertently telling us the audience that he, the director um, is uncomfortable with his own sexuality. Like, like, yes, yeah. you know, like that's basically what totally. he's giving no, us. I, I because think that's a totally valid reading. He's literally showing us like, Oh, here's a guy who's gay. Huh? That's weird. Uh, that sucks. No. Yeah. That's stupid. And, and then immediately <laughs> say the F slur a bunch. Like it's, it, there's this yeah. constant, you know, like discomfort with the, the, the gay character that he's himself created. Right. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, they they made the character gay, but he's also he has to be a little bit cool, so he he has to kind of also hate gay people in a exactly. Weird kind of way. And it does come up again because there's a scene where he's in a gay bar where he he calls somebody a fairy yeah. or something. Yeah. So it it is like a recurring thing, but it's not a thing that makes any sense, as we'll get into. Nor is it bit, relevant to the, the the plot per se. Actually, like yeah, yeah. So uh, we get another attempt here to channel Tarantino um, when Smecker explains the history of putting coins on someone's eyes when they're dead because the the uh, the twins did that for some reason. <laughs> another <laughs> just affectation why. that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And uh, during the, the flashback, it's revealed that Rocco was sent to the room as well to do like a hit. He's like set up by someone that's that comes up later, but you have no idea who they are. To, to do the hit, but he gets sent in with like a six shooter and there's like eight guys in there. So he, he would have been totally, uh, he would have been totally hooped. Uh, there's also like this part where the, the guy, the two brothers fuck with him because they have their masks on and they make them think that, uh, they're going to kill him. And it's, I think once again, supposed to be funny, but it just falls completely flat. So in the next scene, they're, uh, hanging out in Rocco's apartment and they explain their like quest to, to purify the, uh, 
the city of of criminals or whatever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And here I would I would like to read a quote. Yeah, Um, sure. Okay. this is this is directly from the manifesto of the McManus brothers, uh, you know, and, and this is just like like classic fascist stuff. Um, yeah. And, and, and oh, what yeah. he says is uh, he's explaining to Rocco, decent men with loving families. They go home every day after work. They turn on the news and you know what they see? Rapists and murderers and child molesters. Everyone it's thinks about the, the news. same thing. Yeah, it's about, yeah, this he, movie is about the news. He hates the news. <laughs> Everyone thinks the same thing. Someone should just go kill these motherfuckers. So it's just this classic fascist thing of like, you know, the city is filled with scum. There's all these scum sounds around like, uh, us. Sounds like Rorschach. From yeah, Watchmen. exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And but but except of, that Watchmen is well written. Well, yes, precisely. Yeah. Right. It's 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 a version of the Punisher of Rorschach of Batman yeah. of any of these like, you know, anti-hero vigilante superhero things, except that these are just a couple of losers and Troy yeah. Duffy loves them and just thinks they're right and good. And there's absolutely nothing interesting about them, nor any kind of like, like no attempt to, you know, with Batman, there's always this sense of like, yeah, the guy's a bit unhinged because I don't know, like some bats flew at him yeah, and he was sure. stuck in a cave yeah. or something, you know, there's this sense of like, there is something wrong with them. Yeah, certainly every like modern interpretation and adaptation of Batman uh, stops short of like fully praising him. Yeah. There's always supposed to be an uncomfortable element of it. How much it's played up is always varies. Like the Nolan, the Nolan Batman movies are are decent. Like particularly the the, uh, the Dark Knight, the one with Heath Ledger. It, it is a good movie in 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 terms of what it's trying to be, and it also happens to be, I think, out of all of the newer adaptations, like the one that is the most queasy about Batman as a as a heroic figure. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, it's at least trying. I mean, Batman is a yeah. fascist. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like, absolutely. It's a fascist yeah. thing. But at absolutely. least 1, there's an attempt percent. there, you know, to to mm-hmm. like question it, uh, you know, and, and at least cast some doubt on whether this is a good thing. This is like a movie written by someone who uncritically loves Batman and thinks Batman was right. You know, yes. this is like yeah. a movie written by an extra. Batman doesn't from go far Batman enough because he doesn't yeah. kill people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And, and 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 this movie is so stupid that it basically just has everyone in the film eventually agree and be like, yeah, you know what? That's true, actually. Fuck those people. Like, it's just it's 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 fascist and it's also dumb. It's dumb fascism as it off as fascism yes. often is. Uh, yes. Uh, yes. And and the political base uh, for often is. Um. So they got they all get drunk in Rocco's apartment and in another just shameless Pulp Fiction uh, rip off uh rocco slams the table down and accidentally kills his girlfriend's cat and i have to say that this is really i don't know if it should be the thing that offends me the most but i certainly know that like when i was trying to describe how bad this movie was to my wife this was the thing that i mentioned and i think it it's like okay i know it's just a movie but what is the number one uh marker warning sign of a uh psychopath serial killer hurting animals um, yeah killing at killing and hurt and maiming and hurting animals yeah and once again it's supposed to be funny and it's like there is literally nothing funny about no. murdering and it's, a cat and it's the good guys that do it 
Yeah. I mean, for, for fuck's sake, if you want, if, if Troy Duffy desperately needs to portray the shooting of a cat in his film, have one of his bad guys do it. No, he's got his good guys doing it. Or like, if you're going to do it, at least have them feel bad. Yeah, I didn't see they any of that. They think it's awesome. Yeah, and that's then, right. And then immediately afterwards, he gets in a big fight with his girlfriend. Uh, the the aforementioned uh, druggy bitch sequence yeah. where he just screams at her and talks about what a slut she is or whatever. And he's like, I killed your cat. And it was funny to me um, yeah. or whatever. And it's like killing a girlfriend's cat is uh, something that's actually been portrayed in media before uh, in the TV show. Or I guess it was actually probably right after this uh, in the TV show, that 70s show. Um, Eric runs over Donna's cat in an early episode, but what's like supposed to be funny about it. And I can't even remember if it really succeeds or not, but it's like, he spends the whole, he feels so terrible about it. And he's so scared about what she's going to think that he spends the whole episode, like trying to hide the fact that he did it, you know, which at least makes sense in this, in this movie. It's just like, yeah, I killed your cat, bitch. You do drugs. So it's, so it's good. Yeah. Well, Um, and there again, you know, when we, you know, Troy Duffy hates women, it's like, the cat is killed and instead of feeling guilt for it, Rocco and presumably the two twins, like it just becomes this like uh rolling series of justifications for why he doesn't care that he killed her cat. And it's because, yeah, she's, she does drugs, you know, she's a slut, she's a mooch. Yeah. yeah she, there's this yeah. implication that, uh, you know, poor good Rocco has been trying to, you know, take care of her and by you know, working but, for the same horrific criminals that apparently all deserve to die. That's right. Is, the bad guys. The thing yeah. that, that, that really comes to a head later in the movie. So, uh, that in the next scene, Rocco heads to a diner where he shoots the guys who set him up. We have no idea who they are. Uh, they've never appeared in the movie before. It's not clear who they work for or why they would have been sending him on a hit. Like it's totally just, we can't have him kill the main bad guys. So we'll just invent these random guys to shoot up in a diner. Of course, uh, he kills them. And then he also kills the guy behind the bar who like, at best knew about it and so he deserves to die for that he knew about it and even though they don't it's not clear that they know each other at all uh he didn't tell rocco so he dies keep in mind this is the good guy this is one of the good guys this is the lesser of the good guys this is is friend of good guys comic relief character yeah um and uh, i will add parenthetically that this is one of the scenes where um troy duffy's terrible band uh, plays oh, and yeah. you're like this sucks um yeah, so suck. <clears throat> the three of them then head to like a a strip club peep show kind of club uh thing where they have like the private jerk off booths basically um that uh the ron jeremy character frequents which sets up our third uh scene recitation flashback sequence uh thing rocco harasses and threatens the women that work there uh, and then the brothers kill Ron Jeremy while he jerks it off in a private booth. Once again, uh, channeling Pulp Fiction by having uh, a pervert get killed while he's being perverted. Uh, and, you know, but a much less perverted thing than in Pulp Fiction, like just going to a sex worker, you know, yeah, like, yeah. and it's not even really like he is portrayed as a sleaze bag. And obviously there are like, there's rampant problems with, uh, with strip clubs and these kind of things or whatever, but like, on its face, um, jerking off in a in a booth to a sex worker doesn't seem like something that 
uh, you deserve to die for. I'm, I think I'm willing to say that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm willing uh, to back you up on that. Yeah. And yeah. It, it also like, it, there's just this, you know, if you, so what have we got in this film? We've got self-proclaimed vigilantes who have decided that they know best what is evil. And they literally use these terms because they're yes, religious. They say so evil they, m- multiple they times. They say evil yeah. a lot and they're going to, they're going to stamp out the evil and wicked people. Their comic relief buddy at one point actually points out, uh, he, he actually says, I think, you know, like, isn't that a little bit fucked up? Which is what prompts the speech about, uh, you know, look at look around you, look at the about world, the news. Look at, yeah, yeah, the news, yeah, the damn um, news, and, and and then as we discover, like, who are the bad guys? Um, you know, I'm in a spoiler alert. It's not the capitalist class. Uh, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's not going to be the rich. It's not going to be the exploitative. It's going to be, you know, like um, petty criminals, petty guys criminals. Yeah, people who they, go they to sex that. clubs. They mentioned crackheads is one of the crackheads. things that they say, right? Like, right? ugh. Yeah, all of the all of the people that the the right, you know, will use as their kind of scapegoats. You know, society is so fucked up because of all these deadbeats and losers and drug dealers and murderers and rapists. Right. This kind of catalog of who uh, the the right hate. And that's the people that are going to get that are going to be marked for evil here. Like there's no despite the fact that the twins work in a meatpacking plant. Uh, there is yeah. <laughs> never ever any kind of working class politics, any kind, any sense of like working class solidarity. Like these are not, you know, we're we're gonna push back against the people that have fucked us over. This is just we're gonna punch down and and go after. I mean, I, I guess you could make an argument that, you know, they're going after organized cr- crime bosses, you know, who are certainly oh, you know, I'm I'm not gonna defend organized crime bosses, but I mean just no, such no, a of course not. Yeah. Such a stupid kind but all foreign, you know, they're Russian, they're Italian, you know, is like And once again, there's no there's no like you could come up with a a movie where uh vigilantes kill mob bosses and actually have a working class critique of power or of the government or whatever, because as we know one of the things, one of the worst things about organized crime bosses is that they're, they've been routinely used as intelligence assets and protected yeah. Um, yeah. from their crimes or whatever. They could have done something like that. I mean, yep. of course they, no, no, Troy Duffy never could have cause he no. doesn't cause he's stupid, but um, yeah, I don't think he's read a single book in his life. You know, it's a thing that, that you, that you could do. And, uh, and so uh, Rocco also kills another two guys that are also in jerk off booths. Um, because they're bad too, I guess. It's just sort of like they were also Don't bad. Don't jerk off, kids. I guess that's all that's they really like... say. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other. This movie is 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 fiercely anti-masturbation. Um, yeah. And uh, and then molests uh, one of the women who's knocked out, which is also oh god, yeah. Last. That's you know, and this is just this is exactly like it's a small scene, and it's it's meant for comic. It's clearly a scene that's designed for comic relief. There's just been all this shooting and mayhem. And we're going to get like a brief moment to kind of laugh about what has just happened. But what does Troy Duffy choose? He has his his funny man uh, feel up a woman who has passed out uh, at the sex club. And, and and that's the joke. And and then I don't know. So I think the, the twins kind of like walk in on him doing that. And he suddenly pulls his hand away, you know, and, and we're supposed to laugh because like, oh, yeah, well, of course, you yeah, know, she was just laying there. You know, what else is he going to do? I mean, just yeah. the fact that that would be the casual go-to. You could write a million different little comic relief things, but I mean, I 
I don't know. I'm speechless. I'm so I'm so angry that this is passed off as comedy, you know? Yes. So at this point, uh, the film cuts away from the action to introduce uh, August DiStefano, retired former underboss of the Iacovetta family. Uh, he is approached by uh, Giuseppe Iacovetta, uh, the, the sort of character who I guess becomes the big bad of this movie, although at this point it's not really clear that that's going to be the case, uh, who wishes to contact a recently paroled former contracted hitman uh, who goes by the name Il Duce. For for those who don't know, Il Duce was also the nickname of fascist leader Benito Mussolini. Uh, but he's Irish. He's another Irish guy. So this is very confusing why you would have that name. His main thing is that he's contracted to kill mobsters because he likes to kill mobsters. But he works for the mob. So that's really weird. And also, I do just love the idea that uh, what the mob really needs to do is outsource uh, and hire people outside of the mob to kill other monsters. Uh, <laughs> a thing that that they have a long history of doing, obviously. As we all know, monsters never kill other monsters. No, yeah. That's interesting. So they contract him to kill Rocco for some reason, uh, even though he's not a, really a mobster. And even though he's shown multiple times to be a total idiot, even in within the movie, uh, they got to go hire like the world's best hitman to kill him. So this gives way to another smacker narration of a McManus Brothers hit job. There's a lot of them, uh, albeit in this time it's intercut with the action. So it's at least trying to do something uh, different with it. And uh, in another change for the movie, this actually does advance the plot in some way, uh, whereas the the previous ones are just a string of killings that don't add anything. Uh, and have no seemingly no purpose. Uh, the brothers and Rocco hit a wise guy poker game that is hosted by a particularly sadistic contract killer that Rocco drove around and willingly aided and abetted as he murdered an entire family, including uh, the wife and the children, and did nothing to stop it, and then helped him burn the bodies. Apparently, he felt really, really bad about it. Though, He's and changed he his mind. That, yeah. that the guy was disgusting. Um, th- really, this is really the point where you're like, what? why is this guy supposed to be heroic? And why is does he suddenly care about, like, killing his bosses and stuff? Like, it's just, it makes, I know we've said that nothing about this movie makes sense, but this part really, really rankled me. If If there were any consistency to this movie, the brothers would kill Rocco as well. He would be yeah. the first guy they kill. He would yeah. just be like, you mean so little to us that we're just going to pop you in the face. And that's it. Yeah. By the logic of, of the speech he gave, like Rocco is evil. Rocco is one of the evil ones. He's certainly more evil than the, the guys who just wanted to go jerk off. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. like the, the jerk off guys to the best yeah. of my knowledge didn't murder, help murder any children. Yeah. So they show that in flashback. Then they show... Uh, the shootout happening in flashback and they kill, they kill all the people in the poker game. Uh, but before they do that, um, they also like tie up the guy's wife and, uh, tase her. Uh, it's kind of funny because there's a scene later where uh, an innocent person gets killed and, and Defoe is like, well, they would never do that. And it's like, yeah. no, but they yeah. would like tie up and tase a woman, which often does kill people or can kill people. Um, so that's, uh, you know, weird. And then point a gun to her head. And she passes out and they 
they taser, she passes out, and then they kill all the guys in the poker game. I, I, want, I want to intervene. Uh, just before that scene, yes. uh, they're, they're assigning who is going to take responsibility for the wife. It's determined right. that Rocco is going to take responsibility for dealing with the wife, to which he, he uh, has the clever quip, why am I always on bitch duty? Ah, uh, yes. So, yeah. Brilliant. Great stuff. Very funny. Um, so they're trailed to the location by Il Duce, who arrives afterwards and injures all three of them in a shootout before they narrowly escape. Uh, Rocco loses a finger in the process and, uh, Smecker, like, th- at this point, like, he, he arrives at the crime scene and looks totally normal. And then, a, like, a second later, it <laughs> comes back and he's all heroin <laughs> chic and he looks like he hasn't Ties slept in open. five days and he's, like, yeah. smoking a cigarette, pointing a gun into the sky and shooting it. And just having basically a total breakdown at his inability to catch these guys. And uh, there's a really funny part where um, I guess they can't get any samples or something, or I don't know. Something happens, and basically Smecker goes up to the blood and smells it, and he goes, ammonia, these motherfuckers used ammonia. All of this is useless, or whatever. And I just, it's very funny because it implies that he's the only one uh, around uh, like in this like large team of law enforcement that can smell bleach. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, yeah. <laughs> that scans because I would believe that everyone else involved in this movie huffed so much of it that they are unable to smell it and <laughs> have experienced brain damage. Yeah. No, I mean, it's the one thing that checks out about the whole film is that other than Smacker, the cops are idiots like that. Absolutely. Tracks. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so it is roughly around this point that the already incredibly flimsy storyline completely ceases to make sense. Uh, and I mean, that is, once again, like by the standards of this movie. Um, so our heroes return home uh, to nurse their wounds in an incredibly homoerotic slow motion, like <laughs> semi-bondage sequence. Yeah. Did yeah. you pick up on that? I mean, I guess anyone would pick up on that. Probably, oh, yeah. But like, oh, yeah. There's one scene where I guess like so they they have him tied like he's chewing on a piece of like uh, rope or whatever, or uh, it, it, it almost more looks like he's like tied up and gagged. But it, it is like he's chewing on the thing for the pain or whatever. Yeah. But then the guy is like behind him. And he's like, I don't even know what he's doing, but he's like wrenching on his arm or something or like pouring alcohol on him. But it literally just looks like he's getting fucked and and he has like and he's tied up or whatever. If I was making if I was trying to like make sort of if I was as a joke going to present like this is a film, you know, made by someone who can't isn't ready to confront their their sexuality. This is what I would make. I would make these scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's one too in the deleted scenes that you know I won't I won't bog with the details, but effectively uh, the two twins they're at home uh, they're naked inexplicably by the way there is absolutely <laughs> no reason for them to be naked in this scene but they're both at home yeah. naked together um, and their mom phones uh, who was an alcoholic and she's horrible and so of course you know they hate their mother but they care yeah. about their mother anyways long story short she they ask like you know we really want to know which of us came out first you know who who was born first and sure. she says the one with the bigger cock and hangs up the phone uh oh, you God. know which prompts them yeah, this to is sort a deleted like, scene right this is a deleted scene yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you know they so now they're gonna you know there's this joke about are they gonna compare their cock sizes and, and it's like if i was trying to yeah like construct like what would a really painfully closeted man do if he desperately wanted to express, you know, his sexuality, but but couldn't because he was homophobic. And I mean, this is what you would craft. You'd craft something like this. 
It's like the Russian brothers from Goon. <laughs> yeah. It's not gay if it's with your brother. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's very 90s in its yeah. in its homophobia and and yeah, that sort of closeted energy. So Smecker uh at this point uh finds Rocco's severed finger and uses it to successfully retrieve a fingerprint finally. And uh he's all, you know, he's like, "Ah, I found a print. This is amazing." So he immediately uh heads to the gay bar and gets just stone drunk for <laughs> yeah. some reason. Um, yeah. In the morning, he stumbles out and heads into the church from the beginning of the movie, call back, um, and passes out in a confession booth. And then this weird sort of thing happens, like hijinks ensue with one of the brothers and Rocco pointing guns at the priest and each other. It's not a Mexican standoff. It's like a... Um, it's like a Mexican Lucky Pierre. Like he, the, 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 <laughs> one of the brothers is sticking a gun to Rocco's head for some reason. And then Rocco sticks a gun to the priest's head. And then, uh, still drunk, Smecker confesses his inability to like make sense of what's happening and make sense of the case. He's a cop. He says he puts evil men behind bars, but the law is too bureaucratic. There's too much damn red tape. And he finally admits that he actually admires the brothers taking the law into their own hands. He feels that they're necessary. So he asks the priest whether he should uphold the law or join the brothers, basically. And the priest, gun to his head, responds that the laws of God are higher than the laws of man. So Smecker immediately reverses course and announces his intention to join the McManus's quest to stamp out evil in South Boston, which is amazing because the laws of God are higher than the laws of man would seem to imply, like, please don't murder people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because that's kind of like, to the extent that Christianity has rules, there are these things called the Ten Commandments. And one of the only ones that make sense or that people's remem- people remember is that you shouldn't kill people. But apparently, uh, Smecker takes this as, please do kill people, uh, the people that uh, the law can't kill or something. Uh, and so he immediately reverses course and, uh, that's very annoying, but it, it's not even the only time something like that happens in this movie. So I'm just going to leave it there for now and we'll come back to that. So the, the movie kind of glosses over how they start working together. Um, they, it immediately just cuts to a shot of Smecker on the phone with the buys, uh, agreeing to help them track down Il Duce. Um, and then in a le- another like lightning quick jump forward in time, the heroes are kidnapped by Yakaveta and his men. It's not like it just happens. It's very all of this, like for all the time the movie spent on just killing people with no real reason or plot behind it. This part is just like it immediately happens. No context, no like reason. Yakaveta shoots Rocco uh, and leaves the brothers handcuffed in a, handcuffed in a dark room to rot. And at this point, after everything you've seen, Ryakovetta is really coming out like the hero of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, I was cheering when uh, Rocco finally got fucking murked. Oh, yeah. So uh, the mobsters outside the room discuss their fear that Il Duce will track them down, which doesn't make any sense because they just hired him to kill Rocco. And as it is revealed in the scene prior, they had no problem killing Rocco on their own. And now they're like worried that he's going to track them down. And it's not clear why they're worried that he's going to track them down. It is revealed later, not that it makes any sense. And uh, while they're doing this, the McManus is like immediately uh, wiggle their way out of their restraints. Meanwhile, in a just totally bizarre decision, uh, Smecker appears at the front door 
of the the holding house in drag dressed as a woman presumably to distract the henchmen i guess which I mean, if you think about it considering he has already decided he's going to join the vigilante quest he could have just killed them because yeah. these are these are the evil guys it but, seems mainly to be an excuse to get a guy into a dress and i i yeah. i know the question of like passing is very um it's it's fraught it's it's very heteronormative it's very um uh you know it's it's an un it's in my opinion just a totally unfair like uh paradigm to even talk about but i but because smecker is not trans is not even a drag queen or like known is not even really portrayed as being like a crossdresser uh, it is worth noting that willem defoe just as a person and as like a facial structure is the least convincing woman of all time you look at his face and that is a that is a man's face so that part is weird he's also like supposed to be a butch gay guy yeah, uh, and now he's dressed up as a woman. And also, I mean, I, I, and I don't know about you, but I thought I felt like that scene was again. And I'm gonna. I, this is a mm-hmm. theme. Like I felt like this was uh, the director can't come to grips with his own sexuality yeah. and his own desires. And so, what does he do? He <laughs> he drafts this scene of there's a drag scene, yeah. but then in in my opinion, it was actually constructed to be an unconvincing, to be a very like yeah okay you're meant i think you're meant to see that it's it's very willem dafoe yeah it's 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 basically willem dafoe with some lipstick and a wig as if again uh, psychologizing this thing a bit but like it's this sense of like he doesn't he doesn't want to make it convincing because he's afraid of the idea that like you know maybe it'll work maybe it'll look good you yeah know? like totally. it has to it has to be weird looking that's yeah. the only thing he's comfortable doing yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 totally scans. So he starts seducing the henchman, but his wig like immediately falls off. Uh, the guy gets disgusted and he shoots him uh, and then quickly shoots another guy out in the hallway. And this is the only scene where someone gets shot and it's not in slow motion. <laughs> right. Uh, Smecker then approaches another uh, dead gangster. I, I feel like it's supposed to be like, oh, wow, this guy's dead, but I didn't even recognize him at all. Um, so it totally just. Yeah, I mean, flat. at this at this point in the movie, like I lost track of everything. Like I yeah. just like looking for recognizable faces. faces at this point. Yeah, you're like a baby you're just trying to <laughs> yeah. just reaching out for something you've seen before. <laughs> Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, he, and then he, it's, as he's looking at the guy, he gets cracked in the back of the head by Il Duce. Uh, Il Duce then slinks into the room, uh, where the brothers are being held just as they've freed themselves. Uh, they place coins on Rocco's eyes and for some inexplicable reason, recite the prayer about killing people that's made up, by the way. Uh, they've been repeating throughout the movie and then are, in the middle of it, interrupted by Il Duce, who recites the remaining lines of the prayer verbatim as they were recited earlier in the movie. And this is, I had to read the Wikipedia article to understand this, but this is him revealing that he's their father somehow. <laughs> like, this made zero sense. I, I actually, like, would love to talk to someone who really likes this movie and see, like, did you understand that he was their dad? Like, did you pick up on that or did you just think like, and why? Like, there's also this question of why, like if, if he's their dad and he taught them this prayer and he gave them this, like this, uh, I don't know, vigilante kind of thing. Yeah. Why is he a hitman for the mob? Yeah. If he, if he's so into like 
vigilantism. And if like, he's he is ultimately the big bad, except yeah. that he turns out to be on the same side as the vigilantes because they're his kids and he's into it. Like it just none of it makes any fucking and sense. This gets to like one of my biggest gripes with this movie as many and I've I've had many. But like the two characters that are that are potentially interesting as villains immediately as soon as there's like the potential for conflict just immediately join the brothers because the brothers are so cool and obviously we agree with the brothers and with il duce it doesn't really matter because he's barely in it and like it kind of scans because he's irish and you know and they say he's his dad or whatever even though that doesn't make any sense so whatever but the smecker thing is really a piss off because the only kind of way this movie could have been in any way interesting is having the unstoppable force meet the immovable object where it's like they don't want to kill somebody who's a good guy, but this guy is has caught has caught them or whatever. And that's what like it should be setting up is that is that you have it come to a head where the face of the law and the face of vigilante justice face off against each other. And what are they going to do about it? A movie yeah. would do that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, extremely um, extremely stupid. We're into like the last 10 minutes of the movie now. Um, it's We're we're almost at the end. And and now all our like interesting potential villains are are now set up as as being in cahoots with the heroes. Um, and note, worth noting, Il Duce, uh, Mussolini. Uh, so yes. the, the, the guy whose nickname is Mussolini has now joined our uh yes. our vigilante group uh, you know anyways yeah yeah uh, a little bit of uh psychology there for sure yeah. um yeah. so the film then flashes forward three months uh to the trial of giuseppe yacovetta as the viewer is informed via newscast that like basically it's expected he'll be acquitted it's not really clear why but the newscaster is like bad guy gonna go free breaking breaking news bad guy go free yeah well because as you know in the fascist mindset uh, mm-hmm. you know the courts are all run by liberals <laughs> and the criminals yeah. all get away with it and the worst criminals they always slip through the net right you know yeah yeah interesting interesting take to have on that uh so the brothers reunited with their father finally storm into the courtroom give a long dumb speech about dispensing <laughs> yeah. justice um, where they kind of um, do a takeoff on the, is it the, give us your poor, your yada, yada, yada. Is that a, a yeah. what's that from? Is that the Statue of it's Liberty? It's on the Statue right? of Liberty. Yeah, it's yeah. inscribed on the Statue of Liberty. Okay. And yeah, they give the the, the, the long, stupid speech. And then they murk Yakavetta off screen. <laughs> yeah. Stupid. Yeah. You've set this guy up. This is supposed to be the big fucking thing. Okay. So they showed the, um uh they had the thing earlier where um and we didn't measure this but in the 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 mobster hotel room scene you don't see it but you hear about how they both stuck their guns to the guy's head and the bullets crisscrossed and went through the guy's eyes right yeah a filmmaker would have that happen here and you get to see (laughs) it and it would be cool yeah instead you just hear the gunshot and it cuts to willem defoe's face being like oh he got shot wow what a thing (laughs) you know just kind of like reacting to it absolutely just stupid boring uh and then finally uh we get to the end of the movie where uh it's a montage of like man on the street evening news of course interviewing uh different people 
who express different opinions on on the saints, including the only black person in the movie who loves them, uh, says that they're great. And mostly people think they're cool, but a few people don't. Uh, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. And and actually, there was one uh, black person earlier in, in the film. It was oh, the yeah. judge in the court. Of course. Um, yes. The, the the judge who is presiding over the Yakovetta case, which, you know, I'm not going to I want to don't want to overread into into this. Sure. But in, a, in a movie where you have not cast a single black person. Yeah. You finally do cast a black person. And the role that they fulfill is to be the overseer of the court that your heroes are about to shoot the shit out of because it's corrupt and lets the bad guys go. I mean, you know, not exactly great from the standpoint of uh, representation, especially in a movie where you actively have a racist joke that insists on using the N word uh, and, and you valorizes the idea of sending all of the black people back to Africa. So, yes. All right. So that's the end of the movie. And I, uh, I mean, obviously there isn't, uh, I think there's not a lot, more to say about it because we i think we we got into uh to it pretty deeply just as we described the plot of it but i i want to take a second to to talk about and and we'll talk about him at length in another episode at some point but i i want to take a second to talk about tarantino to talk about pulp fiction uh, because anything that is about the boondock saints is also about pulp fiction because pulp fiction is the reason this movie exists both creatively and financially. It's the movie that Troy, Des- Troy Duffy is desperately trying to make and the movie that the, the producers were also hoping he would make um, to sort of cash in on that. Uh, Pulp Fiction, you know, it's an important movie in film history, but particularly for like in quote unquote independent cinema, it's a, re- it's a true before and after moment. Like if you were going to split the history of indie cinema into two parts, it would be pre-Pulp Fiction and post-Pulp Fiction. So, I rewatched Pulp Fiction very, very recently be as sort of because uh, I wanted to compare it to this movie because it had been a while since I'd seen it and it holds up. It's really good. Uh, it, it is a, basically as good as as uh, the critical response would have you believe. But I think the thing that people miss about it, even people who like it, like I, I read a lot of contemporaneous reviews. Um, I read a lot of uh, reviews that were that were done much later. And uh, a thing that comes up over and over again is people really think of it as like this postmodern like movie. It's not really about anything. It's just like a bunch of references to stuff, but it's all just so beautifully crafted and done that it doesn't matter. Um, and I totally reject that interpretation because the movie is definitely about something and it's about, I, it's, it's actually about a few different things. And I think, um, it's got a lot more going on with it um, than than people realize. And it's funny because I read uh, one review that described it as totally like post-racial race basically has nothing to do with any of the characters. Like uh, for the most part with a few exceptions, like Marcellus could be white and Vincent could be black and it wouldn't matter. Right. And then I read an, and I, I basically, I read two reviews that sort of said the same thing. One of them uh, saying that in a critical way, like this movie is post-racial and therefore like uh, it's handling of race is fundamentally very stupid and just not uh, well thought out. And then I read another one that was very funny uh, where they said it was politically correct. And I don't think they meant it as a bad thing, but they were saying like this movie's it's so woke. It's so politically correct. Like the it's got all these women and they all play different kinds of roles that like like some of them are um, are like criminals and equals. And then, you know, some of them are doing this or some of them are doing that. And women actually it's a movie that actually passes the Bechdel test and like yada, yada, yada. Uh, And like, 
you know, it's it valorizes interracial friendship and like stuff like that. And I thought that that was both of those takes I thought were very funny. But what the what that movie is like actually about is Ezekiel twenty five seventeen, and obviously like the the ending of the movie everyone knows is about that because um, Jules like makes the choice to finally in a situation where he's presented with the choice to murder someone or let them go he finally makes the decision to as he says like buy their life right you follow me so far yeah i'm with you okay so basically like if you if you look at the whole um bible verse which of course i have memorized because i'm me and have seen the movie multiple times (laughs) and i am probably one of the most qualified people to talk about uh like tarantino ripoff movies like this because i wanted to make one when i was a kid it so the path of the righteous man is beset on all sides by the inequities of the selfish and the tyranny of evil men. That's what the movie's about. It's about people in every different story being presented with opportunities to do the right thing. And for a variety of different reasons, choosing to either do so or not do so and facing the wrath of God when they don't basically this happens with Vincent and Mia. He does the right thing. Uh, purely out of self-interest, uh, because if he uh, has sex with her or uh, doesn't save her from overdosing on heroin, he is going to get murked. And eventually uh, his like uh, internal uh, sin is 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 punished. Butch behaves heroically by, you know, saving Marcellus, uh, despite the fact that it's against his self-interest. But is it is also kind of also uh, an atonement for him just blatantly stealing his money and screwing him. Jules is the the one person who of his own volition does the right thing because he is choosing to do so, even though there's no real reason for him to do it. And as we know, because the movie takes place non-linearly, Jules presumably walks the earth and Vincent gets murked. And so that's more, that's a lot more going on than I think a lot of people would give the movie credit for, right? Yeah. And when I was a kid, I thought the same thing that I think most people do, which is he mm-hmm. goes, I thought it was just a thing that I could say that sounded cool. Yeah. And even people who like the movie were, were like, yeah. And then he explains that it's not that. And people are like, well, that was a cool movie. And it just goes straight by people. I even read a review where someone said, you know, we don't feel any wiser after he gives his speech or whatever. Uh, and I used to feel that way until I watched it recently. And, and the, the thing that, interest me the most upon the most recent rewatch and that that contrasts so much with with this movie with duffy is the race angle there is a lot of racism in pulp fiction in different ways the n-word is used a lot which is always a a talking point with tarantino Mm -hmm. but i will argue that uh the movie actually does have a racial viewpoint it has a uh and it has a valid racial viewpoint and even the ugly parts where they use the n-word where i personally wouldn't have do actually have a point to them and the point to them is this and that is that if you look at jules's epiphany it doesn't happen immediately he's just blown away by the fact that he didn't get killed in this situation where he uh, was obviously supposed to get killed and then slowly like over the course of like the 45 remaining minutes of the movie he's just kind of He's just kind of doing his thing. And then he he finally decides, like, as they're sitting down in the diner, like, I'm not going to do this anymore. 
And I think that that like space between it happening and him making that decision is important because in the midst of him having that happen and then making the decision to not be in the life anymore, we get the dead N-word storage scene with Tarantino, right? Which is like probably the most criticized scene in the movie. But I think it makes sense. And the reason why I think it makes sense is this. If you look at like the racial makeup of the movie, what happens to the black characters in this movie, even though it's like not necessarily presented as an obvious like story with a racial angle to it. Like Marvin gets shot in the face by accident. Marcellus gets, despite being the guy in the movie with the most power, gets absolutely screwed by Bush, gets his money stolen, has has his wife nearly cheats on him and uh and and overdoses on heroin and he gets sexually assaulted by these two like kkk guys basically right and an interesting thing that i noticed uh is that when butch makes the decision to go back and save him he's standing directly in front of a hybrid confederate american flag which i think is intentional i think that there's a there is a sense here that he is trying to atone for more than just the thing that he did to screw marcellus basically uh, and then obviously he, uh, he goes and he meets with Jimmy, who's supposed to be his partner, supposed to be his equal. And the guy just spews racial invective at him, despite the fact that he's married to a black woman. And so basically what I'm getting at here is that I think Jules's eventual, uh, decision here is supposed to be motivated by the fact that, like, look at how this life treats black people. And people can say that I'm reading into it too much. But if you look at the movies Tarantino has made since Pulp Fiction, mm-hmm. I think it's kind of actually a little bit hard to make the case that it that there wasn't at least a little bit more at play there than people give credit for. And so the reason why I bring all of this up is because ultimately, I think Tarantino's worldview of his movies anyways, take, take away the guy, what he's done in his personal life or whatever. But the, the moral viewpoint of his movies is, is quite clear. He even has a thing. He's, uh, he did a, a, a movie about Sergio Corbucci where they interview him about Sergio Corbucci. And the first thing he says, like it's the, the very first thing it cuts to Tarantino and he's talking and he says, all of Sergio Corbucci's movies are about fascism. I think it's very clear when, if you watch all of his movies, you can argue it's, emotionally immature and i would probably agree with you that it's like uh surface level or it's stupid but i would argue that ultimately the viewpoint of tarantino movies is a progressive one it is pro-woman it is pr- uh, anti-racism even if he does use the n-word a lot in his movies like a good guy never uses the n-word in a tarantino movie only bad guys use it his his viewpoint in his movies is the as much as it's a 12 year old's idea of it it is ultimately like people who hate women and uh, and other races are evil and bad and should be punished. And so that's what makes this movie so fucking galling is it is mm-hmm. because it shows you that like like if you were to give a person who hates Tarantino five million dollars to make a parody movie of Tarantino about how much they hate him and how stupid it is, it would look like this movie. And it's yeah. it's fascinating to me that the people who like a lot of the people who like him the most and try to channel him the most believe the same thing that the people 
who hate him the most do, which is that his movies are about how it's cool to be a racist, sexist shithead and that, you know, uh, it's cool to do that and watch a bunch of people die, even though, you know, hilariously, like Pulp Fiction is and most of Tarantino's movies, actually, they are mostly people in rooms talking. That's most of what it is. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, you know, as a as an ardent uh, Tarantino defender, this movie was like a shining, shimmering Mm -hmm. example of uh, why he is good and everyone else that tries to be him sucks complete shit. Well, and if you set aside all of the stylistic stuff and the stylistic ways in which this movie failed mm-hmm. you know based on your kind of part of your reading of tarantino's films sort of the, their purpose it's like look in in both tarantino films and in this film there's a sense of like there is there is injustice in the world and someone needs to do something about it and it's probably gonna have to be with a gun yeah the difference is like what Tarantino usually points to as the injustice is like racism. actual injustice, <laughs> actual injustice, Oppression. like, yeah. yeah, you know, like, like uh, Nazism, yeah. you know, like there's, 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 there's things that he's pointing to that, that I agree are bad. And I think yes. that, you know, that, a, that any reasonable person would agree are bad. Whereas what this Duffy asshole thinks is bad <laughs> is PC culture. Yes. What he thinks is bad is that, that gangsters exist I guess, and yeah. that the media won't talk about them properly and the cops won't do their job. What if we could do a Tarantino movie, but take out all the affection for black culture? Exactly. And replace exactly. it with racism. Yeah. And also hating uh, lesbians and hating and women, women and, and hating gay people, trans people, like, hate yeah. as many people as possible, um, you know, and have no, uh, you know, believe that you're about justice and injustice, but, but basically hate all of the people who are victims of injustice in our society. And that's this movie and as a result like the there's no catharsis whatsoever there's no first of all most of the people who die we don't even know who they are we don't even know what their deal is but like in a tarantino movie like especially his more recent ones i think you can you can very strongly make the case that like he is sort of trying to right the wrongs of history through cinema yeah. By giving you the catharsis of like watching a, a slave kill all the slave masters yeah. or watching yeah. a guy machine gun Hitler's face into a pulp yeah. or yeah. watching a guy save uh, Sharon Tate from being murdered, which is yeah. like, it, you know, I, I don't know how deep the guy really is. But like, if you want to get into like, uh, you know, the shady, the the whole thing that happened culturally because of the Mansons, like also very interesting. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I look forward to discussing um, yeah. those good movies later in the future. But I think this was a good, a perfect, actually, kind of um, introduction to that. Yeah. And uh, so, I mean, I I think I can predict from both of us zero out of five on this one. Oh, yeah. 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 If there was a less than zero, I would do a less than zero. I'm a worse person for having seen it. Yeah. Defoe is uh, Defoe has maybe two semi memorable redeeming moments that are only memorable or redeeming in in relation to the rest of this terrible dog shit movie that, uh, uh, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll end on this. The only person I've ever met that really, really loved this movie, uh, also said that their favorite book was starship troopers, (laughs) the book, (laughs) so uh okay yeah the fascism thing scans Uh uh-huh it does all right well 
Thanks for listening, guys. And uh, we'll see you next time.